Good morning, everyone. My name is Barb Boylan, and as always, I'm very humbled and proud to be able to read scripture with you today. We're in the book of Ecclesiastics, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event appears, happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the, one, the good one is, so is a sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know what, that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever, you, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and chill to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Barb. Well, good morning once again, everyone. I realized I didn't introduce myself when I came up here earlier, so you wondered, who's this guy and why should I listen to him? And you could still wonder that even after I tell you who I am. My name is Dave Hahn. I'm actually one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege, as always, to open God's Word with and for you this morning. Historically, there have always been objections to the idea of there being an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present and ever-loving God, and it is no different today. And while there are certainly nuances within these objections, what lies underneath each one can be summed up, I think, in one big idea. Life does not always work out the way we think it should, and it can be confusing, frustrating, devastating, and unfair. If God is all-powerful, we say, if he is all-knowing, ever-present, ever-loving, and good, how can he allow to happen what he does? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why doesn't he stop evil? And why doesn't he bring good things to bear if it is so easy for him to do so? These are the kinds of questions that we have asked through all of history, and it's the same questions we're asking today. 
And by asking all of these why questions, we show ourselves to be beings who are in search of meaning. And assuming that we believe that there is a God, we show ourselves to be people who wonder in big and small ways if God knows what he's doing at all. Even though our view is extremely small and very limited. As one pastor put it, telling God that he doesn't know what he's doing is like stepping into a three-hour movie for two seconds, stepping back out, and lecturing the director on the storyline. Disciples Church, if we live long enough, we will personally experience or be witness to all kinds of events life events that are thrilling, gratifying, exciting, and joy-filled, and we will take those moments gladly. But alongside those moments are life events that are shocking and painful, unexpected, and emotionally crippling, forever changing the course of our lives. But why is that? Why do we react and respond to the most challenging things in life the way that we do? What lies underneath our visceral response to what we perceive to be confusing, frustrating, devastating, and unfair? Well, the Word of God tells us there are at least three good reasons for the way that we often respond to life's most disheartening moments. There are many, but these are three big ones. The first reason is that sin has made us prideful and arrogant and entitled. In our sin, we believe we deserve goodness, we deserve rightness, and we deserve all the best that life has to offer. And at the same time, we are keenly unaware of what we truly deserve because we have sinned and rebelled against God. Friends, if you and I and the rest of the world got what we really deserved, it would be death and eternal separation from God. That's what we deserve. Everything else, all else is grace. Secondarily, Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we have desired and created our own sense of good and evil, our own sense of right and wrong. And we judge our lives and the lives of others according to those same sensibilities. We have made ourselves God by judging good and evil according to our own standards rather than His. And how dare we? Friends, God alone is good, and His words and His declarations alone remain true for all peoples and all times. You and I, on the other hand, are sinful, and our so-called standards are ever-changing. We're always changing. What we accept and adopt today is something we abhorred just a decade ago. Finally, 
And most importantly, we respond viscerally to this life because God has wired us to know at a heart level that this world is not as it should be. That it has fallen and broken and in disrepair because of sin's entrance into it. And we know because of that that there is a better way and a life beyond the one that we are living. And it's all of that that we'll be looking at today in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, as we've talked about it and as you've read it, we have heard from who is believed to be Solomon. Not all scholars actually believe that Solomon wrote this book, but we do. And Solomon was one of God's greatest kings, and according to 1 Kings, the wisest man who has ever lived or will ever live. That's what God declared of him. My guess is that some of his extraordinary wisdom came to him in the course of living out what he writes about in this book. After all, it is extraordinarily wise to recognize when you're being dumb. It's really wise to recognize when you're being dumb. Solomon, in his youth, dipped his bread into the au of life, and he partook of all that it had to offer. The good and the bad, the wise and the stupid, the meaningful and the meaningless. And in his later years, after much discovery, he wrote Ecclesiastes as a personal reflection, but also as a tale of warning and of wisdom to those who would read it, including you and me. Solomon is saying to us throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, listen, I have seen it all, I have tried it all, I have done it all, and trust me on this, nothing, nothing compares to knowing and loving God. Nothing that this world has to offer compares with knowing and loving God. And we've said it here at Disciples Church many times, and I'm going to say it again today. The root of every sin and the root of every hardship in life comes down to this. Too often, you and I choose not to live in view of eternity, and we want to be God instead of Him. We do not live in view of eternity, and we choose to be God instead of Him. And as a result, come all kinds of sin and all kinds of hardship. And those sins date all the way back to Adam and Eve's first sin, and they are ever prevalent today. Now, we have come up with a way of sanitizing this idea by ascribing a word to it. And that word, and it's much more sanitary, is the word control. We just like to be in control. What's well, a very sanitized view of what we're talking about? We love being in control, and when it is clear that we are not, it is a source of great anxiety for us, because we not only want to control our lives, but we want to control the lives of everyone else. But as we all know, through having lived life, and as Solomon reminds us today, life is unfair. Evil is real. Death comes to all and control is an illusion. 
Control is an illusion. So rejoice. <laughs> Perhaps one of my most favorite verses in all of Scripture is found in Daniel chapter 5. It's not everyone's favorite verse. It is one of my favorites. And so the background is that Daniel was interpreting the dream of King Belshazzar in which he saw a hand writing on the wall. If you've heard that phrase, that colloquialism, the handwriting is on the wall, it's from Daniel chapter 5. And Daniel was reminding, in part, Belshazzar of how God both exalted and humbled his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and that like his father, the dream was telling him that because of his sin, God was about to humble him too. Nebuchadnezzar, you've forgotten how God has dealt with your father, Belshazzar, and he's about to deal with you in the same way. In verse 23 of chapter 5, he says, You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored Like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, too often, our affections and our hopes land on the creations of this world rather than its creator, to our detriment. Friends, you and I, think of this, you and I cannot even take one breath apart from God making it so. How many breaths have you taken since I've started talking today? Understand that all of them have been given to you by God. We do not determine the day that we would be born, and we do not determine the day that our life will end. And every day in between lies in the hand of the living God who has already determined those things for us and for everyone else. So what are you in control of really? What are you in control of really? Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. Solomon writes, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner." And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and the same event happens to all. Solomon's greatest expression of wisdom in my mind is that he eventually comes to understand what he does not know. And he trusts fully in the one who does. He comes to understand what he does not know and begins to trust fully in the one who does. But here in chapter 9, like in much of Ecclesiastes, he's a bit of a fatalist. <laughs> he's a bit of a fatalist. Though I actually believe that much of that fatalism is kind of tongue-in-cheek and not actually what he really believes. For the sake of the argument that he's making, Solomon is viewing things from the limited perspective that many have, which is you live once and then you die. 
That's what Solomon means when he repeatedly uses the phrase, under the sun. And if we want to understand what he's talking about here, it's important that we read this text looking through the lenses that he is wearing. He is wearing lenses that are arguing with those who would say, this life is all there is. Live once, then you die. Carpe diem, my friends. So Solomon tries to look at things as they appear to be on the surface or, in his words, under the sun. And beginning in the last section of chapter 8, we discover that Solomon does not understand this life. He doesn't always agree with how things happen, and he is glad to tell us all about it. I don't get what's going on, I don't like what's going on, and let me tell you why. That's actually what the phrase, all this, in verse 1 means. So as you read, as I look at all of this in verse 1, he's talking about everything that he has said before and everything that he's about to say. So if you personally have ever found yourself thinking that life makes little sense and can be a little bit confusing at times, or if you find yourself in a place where you think, like many, that this life is all there is, Solomon is going to be your friend over the next couple chapters. Verses 1 through 3 are an example of what Solomon describes as the random and meaningless nature of how this life works. That it can be confusing and frustrating and devastating, and oftentimes it appears to be unfair. And in the second half of verse 2, Solomon seems to say, listen, everything is in the hands of God, but we can't be sure whether it is love or hate that motivates him. We don't know if God is doing what he's doing because he loves us or because he hates us. Out, friends, outside of God's revelation, it really is hard for any of us to know the answer to that question. But God doesn't leave us wondering. Because, according to verse 2, both good and bad come to everyone. Have you noticed that? And seemingly, they come in equal measure to all. And this confuses Solomon just as much as it confuses you and I. And even for we who believe that God is sovereign, sometimes this life makes little sense to us. Good and bad in this life appear to be random and indiscriminate. No matter righteous or wicked, good or evil, clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. And Solomon decries the unjust nature of the equality of outcomes, especially when the hearts and the deeds of man appear to be so unequal. So we resonate with this idea, I think. Right? We resonate with this. We get this. We have in our own minds, although it varies from person to person, who deserves what. Bad people get bad things. Good people get good things. It's only fair, right? And the problem with that line of thinking is the subjective nature of the aforementioned adjectives, good and bad. Words like righteous and good and clean and religious and their antonyms are all in the eye of the beholder, right? How each of us would define each of those words and their antonyms are very, very different. 
I mean, we've all heard someone or something described as good or bad and thought to ourselves, I don't know how someone could see it that way. <laughs> Let me ask you this, very practically. Do you think that the 9-11 terrorists saw their acts as evil? Do you think that they thought what they were doing was evil? Do you think that the perpetrator of the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre felt as though that what he was doing was wrong in that moment? Or even still? No. No. Friends, our wicked hearts are more than capable of justifying the worst of our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And, by the way, of those that we love and agree with, we can justify them too. And that, my friends, is why we sin as often as we do. We are able to justify ourselves to ourselves. Now, some of our sins are born of ignorance or a hot-blooded reaction, but if we're honest, if we are honest, the good majority of our sins are willful and premeditated. Meaning, we have thought about that thing, and we are highly aware that we ought do it or not do it, say it or not say it. And still, we are able to convince ourselves that doing, saying, or thinking that thing is okay. Which leads us to verse 3. Now, if you thought this first section is a little depressing. You need to buckle up because Solomon is about to shift into high gear. <laughs> so let's look at verses 3 through 6. The second half of verse 3. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Selah. Now, I am often described as an honest, upfront, tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy, but I would argue that I've got nothing on Solomon here. Even I was like, whoa, dude. And still, as hard as these things are to hear, these verses, it really is hard to argue with what he's saying if we look at things in reality. We are born evil. We can all be quite mad, and we all do eventually die. Disciples Church, mankind is not, is not inherently good, no matter what this world may tell you. We don't have to teach our children to yell, mine, or to hit other kids, or to routinely disobey their mom and dad. We don't have to teach them to do any of those things. They do all of that and more, all on their own. And do you know why? It's because 
Mankind has been born in sin with a twistedness within our hearts and a rebellion towards God. And as a result, we delve into the madness of trying to live life apart from Him. Sinfully looking for satisfaction of knowing our Creator by worshiping His creation and pushing Him off of His rightful throne by pretending to be gods of our own lives until one day, according to God's sovereign will, we die. It is hard to argue with that. And if that, if those things are all that this life has to offer, and remember the perspective from which Solomon is arguing, if that's the case, if that is all this life has to offer, Solomon says we might as well enjoy it because once you die, according to verses 5 and 6, your consciousness, your reward, and any memory of you is gone. (laughs) Okay, Solomon, says the reader, what should we do? Verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and in your toil at which you toil under the sun." Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Solomon encapsulates his advice to us this way. This life is random and it is meaningless and we all end up dead and forgotten anyway, so eat, drink, and be merry. Find comforts where you can find them. Spend time with those that you love and work hard at the things that you're good at because none of those things will be found amongst the dead in the darkness of Sheol. It's better to be six feet above ground than it is to be six feet underneath it. I mean, good night, right? I mean, bleak and hopeless might be too optimistic a view of what Solomon lays before us in these last verses. But, listen, apart from the hope that we have in God and the promises that we have been given by God, that way of living with death breathing down our neck is all we have to look forward to. Hunter S. Thompson, who is an author, in his book, The Proud Highway, coined this famous quote. I've seen it on t-shirts and it struck me the first time that I saw it. It was a slightly abbreviated version, but basically, this is the full quote from that book. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. In some sense, what Mr. Thompson said has wisdom. This life really is an extraordinary gift, and it should not be lived in fear or in trepidation. 
Rather, it should be enjoyed and it should be lived to the full. But, but, in another sense, Mr. Thompson's advice is sad and it is misguided because it is written from the perspective of one who saw this life as all there is. With mankind at the center of it all, rather than God. It's sad and it's misguided when you believe that this life is all there is and mankind sits at the center, you sit at the center rather than God. My friends, God has made us for himself. To know him and enjoy him is the purpose of this life and sadly, we choose often to ignore him and to live for ourselves instead. Do you know that ultimately, Hunter Thompson ended his own life while on a phone call with his wife? That was his skidding through the finish line. Solomon makes a case in these first 11 chapters of this book saying, if in this life you're looking for eternal meaning, satisfaction, and purpose, or if you are looking for a real sense of rightness, fairness, and justice apart from God, you are likely going to live a miserable life and die disappointed. But, aren't you glad for that word? But, if we see the life that God has given us as a beautiful gift meant to stir our affections for him, we can live a life of fullness and abundance. We don't know, my friends, how many days God will give us or what those days will hold, but we can know who holds them and we can rest in his faithfulness, his provision, and his goodness. Friends, on this side of heaven, things may appear, that's a key word, they may appear to be random or unjust or unfair, but in the life to come, all is made right and understanding will be ours for those who trust in Jesus. If you were to look at the back side of the most beautiful tapestries in the world, you would discover that behind those tapestries is a mess and it's really not meant for public viewing. But what appears to be messy and random and far less than beautiful when viewed from the proper side makes all the sense in the world and it takes your breath away. And so it will be in heaven. So it will be in heaven. God is weaving together an eternally beautiful and deeply meaningful tapestry in the course of human history. And right now, you and I are looking at the backside of it. But one day, in God's presence, we'll see the right side of what he's been putting together, not just in our own lives, but in every life. And all the hurts and the heartaches and the disappointments and the seeming injustices of this life will be set right and make sense. And God, this morning and always, is asking you and I to humble ourselves enough to trust him for that promise. Will you trust him? My friends, God is not apathetic to the pain that we feel when life is hard, disappointing, confusing, or unfair. 
the words buck up do not come out of God's mouth. By the way, even when you and I are the cause of our own hardships, and we often are, rather, God is loving and empathetic and compassionate. And no matter what our lives may hold, God's Spirit has revealed to us that it is God's love that rests on us, not hatred. So we no longer have to question his motivation as Solomon did in verse 1 of this book. And here, my friends, is how we know, just in part, how God loves us. Since before creation, God endeavored to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and redeem the lost. That's you and me and everyone else. In spite of our abject rejection of him, so that he might bear the full weight of every disappointment, of every hardship, and of every injustice on our behalf so that we would one day know joy and gladness, righteousness and justice in him. That's why he came, and that's how we know he loves us. Friends, throughout his life on earth, Jesus knew hardship, he knew betrayal, he knew knew persecution, and he knew injustice. And the book of Hebrews tells us that because of that, we have a sympathetic high priest who is familiar with everything that afflicts us. There is nothing that happens in your life or in my life to which God in Christ does not say, I know. Be encouraged. He experienced hardship and betrayal and persecution and injustice on our behalf. The Holy One of God had nowhere to lay his head, though the whole world was created by and for him. He called and loved the most unlikely from among Israel, only to see them abandon and betray him in his greatest time of need. He endured a mockery of a trial and was sentenced to death, though there was no evidence to accuse him. And he absorbed your sins in mine, past sins, present sins, and future sins. He absorbed them all, though he didn't commit one of them. And he was buried in a tomb, having experienced death on your behalf, though he is the author of life. And then he rose again three days later to give eternal life to those who believe love and trust in him. That's how we know he loves us. That's why we can trust him. Friends, for the Christian, if you count yourself a Christian in this room today, death's sting, understand, has been removed and its victory has been stolen. If you count yourself a Christian today, understand that Sheol is not your destination. Heaven is. Friends, God has put eternity on the hearts of men, as Jonathan talked about last week, and that is why we spend our days here on earth chasing down the fulfillment and satisfaction that only heaven can give. And the dissatisfaction that we feel when nothing under the sun satisfies is evidence of the presence and the grace of God. In his grace, God is calling us to something greater, something that fills every hole and something that makes sense when nothing else in this world does. Ultimately, 
he is calling us to himself. The way, the truth, and the life. Colossians 3 says it this way in closing. If then you have been raised with Christ, and if you're a Christian, that's who you are, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The life of a Christian is hidden in Jesus, and we belong to him, both here on earth and unto the life to come. But until glory comes, may we seek first that which is above, remembering that God is good, that God is sovereign, and that even when our life seems out of control, we know the one who has it. It may be out of our control, but it's not out of his. And when life appears to be a mystery, we can rejoice in knowing and being loved by its author. And because of these profound truths, no matter what our lives may consist of here on earth or for however long God would give us breath, we can rest satisfied in him who graciously gave us this life to enjoy in the first place. It's amazing. And today, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, according to verse 4 of this chapter, you still have reason to hope. You still have reason to hope because in his grace, you're still alive enough to turn from the sinful, meaningless life that you have been living. And by faith, come to him who is willing to be your life both now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, we um, confess and admit that we consider ourselves so wise, so mature, and so clever that we would actually dare question and doubt you. We confess that we are so self-sufficient that we believe a life of fullness and satisfaction can be lived apart from you. We confess that we are far too easily pleased with the here and the now and hardly consider our eternal home and the things of heaven. Thank you, our Father, for giving us your Son who has removed the veil from our eyes, who has forgiven us all our sins and more and has raised us from the dead, never to taste a death of our own because he tasted it in full in our place. Father, when life disappoints, confuses, and hurts us, may we depend upon you and rely upon you and lean into you ever more deeply. Would you let the good things of this life stir our hearts in gladness for and in worship of you? In your grace, God, you have provided everything and everyone that we enjoy. It is all from you, and it is all for you. Remind us of this profound truth when we forget it, and then lead us into worship. Father, would you give us courage and opportunity to share the gospel of your son and the reason for the hope that we have with those that you have put around us. 
Give us a heart of compassion rather than judgment, even as we have received the same from you. You alone are God and you alone are good. Would you give us the faith that we need to believe it and help us in our unbelief? We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.